people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Joker from the island, and this is Rafterman. Rafterman. Hi, I'm Kevin Major Howard. I played Rafterman in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, and I'd like to introduce you to an exciting new documentary about the making of the film. I think the bizarre stories about Stanley Kubrick have been created because, you know, he chooses not to do interviews, and so people have to make up stories about him. Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. You will not like me. And I believe there's a tremendous amount of violence in there, and and I know for a fact that Stanley Kubrick is an anti-violent type individual. A groundbreaking new documentary exploring Kubrick's legendary war epic. Actors are sometimes undisciplined enough not to go home and go to sleep at night and they go out and they come the next day and they haven't learned the lines. Prepare yourself for the ultimate examination of this cinematic masterpiece. From its very inception, adapting the original novels. How can you shoot women, children? Easy! You just don't lead them so much! <laughs> the script writing process. Through the stunning art design. The unusual casting process. The challenging UK shoot through post-production. And its eventual release in 1987. Question the interviews, 1234. Exclusive, never before heard interviews with the key players. Private Joker has uh, Born to Kill in his brain, and he has a peace sign on his heart. Peace symbol, sir. Here are the perspectives of lesser known contributors, such as supporting actors, I'll fix it up, sir. crew members, and other behind the scenes personnel. Animal Mother cuts the head off the sniper. Rare photographs, footage, production materials, and archival interviews. It also suggests a sort of post-combat euphoria, which you see in uh, Crazy Earl's face, you know, after he shoots the guys that are running out of the building. That great look on his face of euphoric pleasure. Suddenly the music starts. I well, everybody's heard about the bird. An in-depth and intimate journey into the making of one of Stanley Kubrick's most revered films, told by those who were there. You're so ugly you could be a modern art masterpiece. Modern art masterpiece. The making of Full Metal Jackets. Hey, start the cameras. This is Vietnam, the movie. Today, you people are no longer maggots. You're part of a brotherhood. From now on, until the day you die, wherever you are, every Marine is your brother. But always remember this. Marines die. That's what we're here for. But the Marine Corps lives forever. And that means you live forever. If you want to see this film get made and officially be part of Kubrick's legacy, then check out the different levels of support and the great perks. Please, share this campaign with anyone you think may want to get involved. Talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? 
looked like something, didn't it? Thanks for watching. Roger out. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Kevin Major Howard, Lou Pizarro, and Stephen Rigg, all about their new film, A Modern Art Masterpiece, The Untold Story of the Making of Full Metal Jacket. Currently, they are in the fundraising process. They are looking for some funds via Indiegogo. I will have a link to that in the show notes. I've backed it, and so can you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Lou, give me a little bit of your background. How did you get involved with filmmaking? How did you get involved with this project specifically? I come from reality TV. But as far as I can remember as a kid, I remember taking the bus downtown to watch three Shaolin movies for $4. And that was, we did it once a month. That was my, my mom being single. She would take me and my brothers and sisters out there, the popcorn, just watching different types of, of movies through the years. And I I did an intern one time. I was maybe 20 years old because I wanted to make movies. And of course, went on about my life and he joined the Marine Corps, started a repo company. I worked for Continental Airlines. I did a lot. And then one day I just got a phone call from Telemundo to do a news segment of the day and life of a repo man in Spanish. So that was the catalyst that triggered the show idea. And once put that show together. I pitched it. They liked it. I started pitching other shows while I was in production on that one. And then finally I made a little bit of money. I did my first film, which, so I've done quite a bit of uh, independent films since then. And then in between that, I've been really good friends with Kevin Major Howard, fueled by the fallen. He invited me, took me under his wing. I learned a lot out of, out of what he was doing. His tribute to our military, man, to our first responders, it's amazing. And I fell in love with that. And when he calls, I come running. Kevin, is this your baby? Is this documentary your project? It's a collaboration with this team, and I think it needs to be told. By the way, I'm Kevin Major Howard. I played Rafterman in Full Metal Jacket, opposite Matthew Modine, where Stars and Stripes. And to continue on your question, I would say... It's a team effort and one that needs to be told. I think Stanley Kubrick is a genius film director. All of us do. But there's a human side to him that I don't think was very much explored. And I want to share some of that limelight with an audience. Stephen Rigg, Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. I met him on a podcast and we began to speak of perhaps maybe going down this road. I was convinced with Stephen, he's just a super talent and he understands Kubrick's life. And so we put these assets together. I brought Lou on simply because the man is very talented at what he does. And he's a former Marine, as he said. And I just think, again, this story needs to unfold. We have a new generation of audience, young kids who really have latched on to Full Metal Jacket because Stanley Kubrick is like a fine wine. It just keeps getting better and better. And so I want to introduce this to that demographic so that Stanley's work is appreciated and continues. Stephen, tell me a little bit about the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Back in 2011, fairly early days of Facebook, I decided to set up a group called the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society because I was a Kubrick fan and I just discovered you could make groups and I thought that's an appropriate group to make one of because I was very much into Stanley Kubrick. And yes, so that was 12 years ago. We've got 
I think we've got 50,000 members there. Very active membership. There's a lot goes on there. I haven't got time to, to read half of what gets posted on there, but it's good quality stuff, all Kubrick related. And we've got a couple of guys who admin that with me, Mark Lentz and James and Robert Sherman. And uh, yes, that's the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook. Stephen and my wife, Tiffany, had spoke and decided that I should be a guest on his show. And we did. I think it went on for two or three hours. It was, uh, it was just good fun. And the more I began to realize who Stephen really was, I went to uh, Kelsey Howard, the one of the producers on this journey. And I spoke to Kelsey and I said, I think this gentleman is worth really taking a hard look at. He's very talented. He has a great insight into Mr. Kubrick. He has a lot of assets untold. And I think that this collaboration could really be benefit to the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. That being said, we had this conversation. I explained who Lou was. I explained who some of the team members I'd like to bring in. And we all just said something worthwhile. Let's go forward. And that's the way this all kind of seeped to the top. It was an understanding of love for the man and the man's work. And we had an ideal situation where we could collaborate and make it come true. When it comes to this documentary, how do you even figure out what the, the limits are? Where do you start and where are you headed? And, and also, where are you at with this actual project? I always thought that this should be a, a good Full Metal Jacket documentary. There's only been one, which was a 30-minute documentary on one of the home movie releases. I always thought it'd make a good documentary. And what it has going for it is, because it was made in 87, which came out in 87, which does seem a long time ago, but in the, if you look at Kubrick's filmography, it's his second to its last. So we've still got a lot of guys around available to talk about Full Metal Jacket. And I have spoken to a couple of extras from Full Metal Jacket, and they had some fantastic stories, which also got me thinking that beyond what we've heard the main cast talk about on interviews here and there and in the original documentary, a lot of the behind-the-scenes guys have got some fantastic stories. So I think what the idea is to hopefully re-interview all the main cast, the secondary cast, and anyone who's involved. There's about 30 named cast members on the end credits and about another 70 named extras who are Marines. So to me, there's 100 people to talk to there. <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to speak to them because there's going to be a lot of limitations. We'll handpick it. And most of the crew are still around. So I want it to be all-encompassing, but obviously we can't make a, a seven-hour movie. But I want to speak to anyone who's got a great story, and which should in turn tell the story of the making of Full Metal Jacket. We haven't interviewed anyone yet. We haven't really approached anyone yet. We want to raise some finance so that we know we've got a bit of cash behind us to go ahead and do interviews. The two areas that we want to interview are obviously in the States, because all the main cast were Americans, and they're all out there. But the rest of the supporting actors and crew are mainly over here in England. So we need to do two, two different locations for film shooting, for interviewing the people. We just want a fantastic documentary at the end of it that's going to get, hopefully get some screenings out there, hopefully get streamed. 
and hopefully a few people will be adding it to their Stanley Kubrick shell at some point. One of the things we also uh, want to show, yes, we want a full-length documentary. Again, even early on that Kevin Major Howard were saying, we want this new generation to know this. We want it to live on for ages, for another 100 years plus. And one of the difference sets that we're going to have there is, yes, we're going to interview all these cool new people. And there's a lot of other interesting new things, but Kevin will touch that because that's his thing because I can't say too much or, or we get pop out, we get in trouble. As we know, Full Metal Jacket was not shot in Vietnam. It, it was depicted. But we're actually going to visit the places in Vietnam. We're going to visit Da Nang. We're going to go through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We're going to do these different things to make this documentary so powerful and memorable. People are going to love this, and it's going to keep on going on and on. Since my making of Full Metal Jacket, my involvement, and meeting some of these Marines... I was invited down to 29 Palms, a Marines base in California for a silent drill celebration, and I was a guest of honor. That being said, after the silent drill, which was brilliant, I was taken on a tour of the base, and I was introduced to a memorial monument to a gentleman by the name of Tori L. Gray, 19 years old, and as it began to explain this monument to him and his life. He was the individual that jumped on a grenade to save his men in Fallujah, one of the first early ultimate sacrifices paid. I walked away from that moment thinking, my goodness, the DNA properties of anybody who puts a uniform on is worth applauding, standing back, and having your jaw drop in awe. And in response to that feeling, I needed to do something as an American citizen to say, I get the message, I understand the message, and here's the way I can give back. And that became a gift from my family to all Marines and all men and women of service in any of their uniforms. It was a Marines tribute race car, which was emboldened with 864 of our fallen heroes uh, Marines and their ranks and names applied to the panels of the car. I did this because I think that the automobile is one of the great canvases to paint with. You will get the attention of a two-year-old or a 92-year-old, and the story is told. When I brought it to 29 Palms, a little worried that maybe I might offend somebody, didn't know, but you are dealing with an awful lot of people who paid the ultimate sacrifice. As the car rumbled into its main gate, all of a sudden, every Marine that was in withstanding within visual appearance of that car rose to attention and then saluted as this car idled by. I was invited to the stage. It was a Montgomery and Ridge concert. I was invited to the stage to, to unveil it. And I said to every Marine sitting there, 5,000 plus, it doesn't stop here. It becomes the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, etc." I then turned that into three police national cruisers that carry the names of all those from 9-11, that moment, to uh, present dates. I built five Camaros with light bars and told the story of 9-11 itself. That all was part of the influence of Full Metal Jacket and introduced me to a way to give back to our heroes to let them know they are not forgotten. And I will applaud them each and every day that I'm alive and that I can share this 
with the children because these children can't walk into their future with our flag if they don't know their history. And this is the way you can tell that history. That all being said, I have met many a person, a family, a brother, a loved one, a father, who applauds the fact that we are who we are as humans and we are who we are as Americans and that we need to be respectful of each other. And that was what this is this has introduced to me is this kind of respect that I want to share amongst us all simply because as our world is falling apart, America is in decline at this very moment, and we need to stay strong and to continue on our freedoms. And so this influence has been a very big part of Full Metal Jacket within me and a way for me to tell that story because I do have the ability of a red carpet with Full Metal Jacket on my sleeve being a part of the making of it. So with Steve and Lou, I really appreciate their talents and helping us get this journey accomplished. And it means an awful lot to me personally, simply because it's not just Full Metal Jacket. That was the Vietnam War, but we have a new war today. And I think that they meld beautifully simply because these are our men and women who go to battlefields and then come home with their sleeves and freedom for us in their hearts and fought for brilliantly. So that's part of why I do what I do with this is to contemporize Full Metal Jacket in today's society and say, that soldier that just went to war for you needs to be in your hearts at all times, needs to be in your arms when they come home. Don't sell yourself short. This is great America. It always has been and will continue to be. Kevin, I know you had been acting for quite a while before you got the role in Full Metal Jacket, but can you tell me what that process of getting that role was like for you? been very blessed in my lifetime. Like you said, I've done an awful lot of film. I'm a young man from Canada at 20 years old. I come to Los Angeles to seek out my fame and fortune. And here I was on the doorstep of an industry that was really catering to my age at that point. There were very few of us at 20 years old studying acting and acting classes in Los Angeles because every script that was abound was mostly a 35-year-old plus uh, subject matters that dealt with that age group. However, the tide had turned where movies were shifting to the younger crowds, and I was just standing in the perfect place at the perfect time to get hired to play a lot of guest stars on a lot of films. Scared Straight, Another Story was one of my opening films. I love that piece. Again, you're sharing what it's like to be a young man. You're sharing with the world at large and saying to all young men, do not follow in these footsteps. You will end up in prison. You will be unhappy and you will end up probably losing your life. And so I was able to show that excitement off in that character. That's not the place you want to be. And I got a tremendous amount of applause from the industry itself, where they invited me in to do more film, more television, A-Team, Chips, guest starring on Strike Force, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I went off to do a film with Clint Eastwood, then Frank Sinatra, then Charles Bronson. I was really in the thick of the mix of their greatness. And it offered up when Stanley Kubrick came along and said, and wrote me a letter saying, if you want to do my film, just write me back and just say yes. I wrote him back and I said that very much yes. 
and I didn't hear from Stanley for about a year and a half. I thought perhaps maybe this is just a dream of mine. And then one day I'm traveling through Italy. I'm backpacking, taking a little adventure off in Europe for uh, six months, whatever. And uh, a lady walks up to me. I have tens of thousands of people walking in the streets. A lady walks up to me. She says, hi, you're Kevin Major Howard. And I said, yeah, who are you? And she says, Rosanna Pellucci, I'm actually Clint Eastwood's agent over here. And I went, whoa. And then she said the word was put out through all of Europe to be on the lookout for you because Stanley's making this film and he wants to know if you really want to do it. And immediately we went back to her office. We phoned up Stanley Kubrick and there it was. The invitation was met. I said, yes. We talked on the phone. He said, I'll see you in four or five months. And the script was sent. And there I was sitting in Greece when it arrived. I was in Santorini. And lo and behold, my life completely changed. This man offered a, and still does to this day, and it just gets better with a fine wine. I get the red carpet treatment. And I don't use it as an ego boost. I use it as a way to share the gift of what my father influenced me with, which was respect and honor and change the world somehow. And so he's offered, Stanley Kubrick has offered me that place to change the world somehow. And I did it with a 21 car salute to our heroes, um, which still stands today. In fact, Lou and I are actually been invited to be the grand marshal for the 50th anniversary of our Vietnam vets returning home called the Honor Convoy in Placentia, California. October 14th is when it's going to happen. Man, Mr. Kubrick, thank you so much for the many gifts you have given to me. I walk into a restaurant and people just know. And again, I've been afforded that blessing. Been lucky. It's got me interesting. With that movie in particular, it's so divided. Did you ever even meet Arlie Ermey or... Vincent D'Onofrio, because you didn't share any scenes together. Funny enough how that all really unfolded. When I got the script, it's based really tightly on Gustav Hosford's understanding of Rafterman and Joker as they traveled together through Vietnam. When we got to the set, the script was still intact, but Arlie Ermey was our technical consultant, and Arlie, early on in the first few days, was sitting there with me and I believe Sal Lopez, and he looked at me and he said, Stanley's going to need an awful lot of extras to play these roles of Marines, and I'm figuring I'm going to help Stanley out by saving him time and frustration. I'll just grab a bunch of 300 guys. I'll take him out to a tarmac. I'll have a video camera, and that way I can point to the screen and say, Stanley, use that guy. Oh, and use that guy and that guy right there. And I looked at Arlie Ermey that day and I went, oh my gosh, I know what you're up to. And his wry smile came aboard and I looked at him and I got the message. He was really going to tear apart that script and audition for Stanley, pretending he was casting for Stanley those extras. The minute Stanley saw that film footage, he tore the script in half and we were off to the rate. And that's why it's two separate films. I was not disappointed, however, with the outcome. I think it's an incredible performance that Arlie put in. And yes, I am part of Arlie's life in such ways. But I'll say this, with my five tribute cars to 9-11, the white Camaros that have the names of everybody we lost to 9-11, those five cars with the lights on escorted his um, coffin 
for 100 miles through Los Angeles, and I let those lights burn brightly for all those to let them know this was a man worth watching. This is a man worth saying goodbye to. So I had those last moments with R. Lee as well. He was a very gifted human being. He cared for his Marines, as Lou will tell you. Not only was he our gunny, but he's our nation's gunny and this world's gunny. And I always say that because all the different military around the world, whether it's the Philippines or, or whoever, they have a version of the Marines and the gunny is meant so much to them to, to this day. So I always like to throw that out. And by the way, Kevin, I love hearing that, man. It just, it gives me chills and I just love it. So Semper Fi to that, brother. Thank you. Uh, Semper Fi, brother. And also in this journey, because Stephen is who he is, we have a lot of new asset uh, on Arlie Ermey that we uh, will we'll share through this documentary. And there are people around him that are very much his intimates, whether it's family and or brother and or sons and daughters. These will be also explored as to why this man was as great as who he was, he was. Yeah, I'm very curious, Stephen, as far as the just the amount of stuff you've been able to dig up over the years. Like you said, this movie came out in 1987, so we have all of these years since then to almost retroactively do your research. Tell me a little bit more about that process and some of the things that you're bringing to the table. Obviously, the kind of elements that are needed for a documentary are mainly interviews, also archive footage, photographs, and other visual elements. I've been a big Kubrick collector for a long time, so I've got quite an accumulation of production materials from the film that I managed to get hold of over the years, call sheets, production reports, that, that kind of thing. Also, because I am in the Kubrick community with the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, there's a lot of other Kubrick collectors in there. We do share, we've got, I think there's three or four guys in the group who have got hundreds of photographs that they've got hold of relating to behind the scenes on the film. I know a few filmmakers out there who've got archive interviews that are available for anyone that we caught that are no longer available to, to talk. Also, the stuff really. Anything we need, to, if it's available, I feel confident we'll get it. We're also very likely going to use the Kubrick archives in London to do some research there. There's a lot of materials in there, including some photographs that Kevin's car Kevin's character Rafterman took, because you'll remember that Rafterman was a photographer for Stars and Stripes, and he was always snapping away. It turns out that there was actual film in that camera, and we've recently discovered that Kevin's rolls of film, some already developed, are in the actual archive in London. So things like that we're hoping to get hold of. You, you got me so excited, Steve. I loved hearing all this as a reflective mirror, and, and I'm looking so forward to the unveiling of this journey. It's going to be remarkable, so stay tuned for it, please. Oh, I'll just mention, Lou mentioned earlier about uh, visiting locations. Lou's going to have a look at Vietnam. I'm going to have a look at the locations in England. Most of the Vietnam stuff was shot Beckton Gas Works, which is no longer there. It's now a retail park, so there's not a lot to see there. There's no point really visiting that, that location. But there are another maybe a dozen sites, locations, that you 
think might have been at Beckton, but they weren't. And they were all available. Stuff like places like Cliff Marshes in Kent, Epping Forest, there was some scenes done in Epping Forest in Essex, the Isle of Dogs, the Millennium Mills, and the Norfolk Broads. They got around did the guys. Everyone thinks that they filmed everything at Beckton Gasworks, but they got around the country a little bit. And also they went to RAF Swin- Swinderbe in Lincolnshire, which is up north. So, yeah, so there's all that. And then, of course, Bassingbourne Barracks in Cambridgeshire, where all the early training camp stuff was shot. So there's plenty of locations to revisit. Lou, is it too early for you to have started gathering your crew and started thinking about the actual look of the film and these kind of things? Do you have a scheme in mind for when you shoot your interviews? Because obviously that is such the bread and butter of documentaries. Are you already planning that out? Yeah, you know what? Collectively, we are. Myself, as a producer, director, I'm always looking for that difference that when people are going to say, wow, that's awesome. Like us going to Vietnam, the stuff we're going to be doing in Vietnam. Not too many people are going to want to go into the jungle. It's, it's dangerous. There's a lot of things that can hurt you or kill you. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be there taking care of business. And with today's technology and equipment, there's these cool shots that we can get. Even when we're doing testimonials, when we're doing the interviews, I have this, these cool ideas that we're going to just interject. We're going to make this thing memorable. And there's a few other things that I promise everybody that's listening is going to be out of this universe. It really is. And again, it's more of the stuff that we can't quite talk about yet. Now, if you would have had me one-on-one, I'd be able to tell you, but Kevin Major Howard hit it. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. So yeah, we're, we're going to impress everybody. I can tell you that. It is currently undergoing funding on Indiegogo. I have given. I don't remember what level I gave at. I don't think I'm an associate producer. I kept cheap in that way, but there are great perks available for this. It's fantastic. And there's going to be new perks as well announced shortly. We are working on those, developing those. So please go back, refresh the page, take a gander at what it is that we're explaining to you. And thank you very much, Mike, for jumping on board that way. Thank you, sir. Now, I don't want to put you guys on the spot or anything, but if you'd be up for talking again in a few months and we could see where the project's at then and just continually update people on this, I would be all for that if you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Absolutely. I think and short was, from, well, short from us, us today. Thank cloning Stanley Kubrick, this is just going to be, again, out of this universe. How well everybody's heard about the bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner.
Where do we 